there. You're listening to the Collective Church Podcast, recorded live at Collective Church in Roanoke, Texas, with lead pastor Rob Carmack. Enjoy the sermon. Um, So my husband went to New York this week for work and I got to tag along and it was really fun. And now I'm in that like weird vacations over and now I have to go back to real life kind of in between place that is always like I'm excited to be home and sleep in my own bed, but I'm also a little sad that I have to go back to real life and I don't get to pretend like I live in New York anymore. So that was fun. Um, <laughs> that has nothing to do with my sermon today. I just wanted you all to know that I'm <laughs> I got to go to New York. Uh, <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, this year, uh, last year, 2021, was really a hard year for all of us. Um, I think following a what I was just pure and utter chaos of 2020, where everyone was miserable in one way or another, or maybe all of the ways. Um, 2021 didn't really offer any solace. I think for a lot of people, um, things kind of went back to normal. At least we pretended to be back to normal, but it wasn't normal. And for our family personally, we were dealing with a lot. I mean, I know all of you have your own struggles and things that you dealt with in 21. Um, But for us, I was very sick. In 2020, I had COVID and like never really fully recovered and spent all of 2021 bouncing from doctor to doctor trying to figure out what was wrong with me. And I like kind of as it went on, started to feel more sick and more sick and more sick to the point where I wasn't even really like thriving or living as a person. I was just kind of surviving. I would spend all day just like hoping against hope that I could stay conscious long enough with my kids to keep them from hurting themselves. Um, And then when my husband got home, just like completely collapse and spend the rest of the night under a heating pad, dreading that I have to do it again tomorrow. It was uh, miserable. And I saw doctor after doctor, I had two surgeries, um, had like hundreds of vials of blood drawn. And every doctor would run every test that they could possibly run and say, sorry, we can't help you and bounce me off to someone else. And I'd start over, run every test that they could run. Sorry, I can't help you. Go see some other specialist. And no one ever had any answers. No one could ever tell me what was wrong. And no one knew if it was because of COVID or something that I had that COVID made worse. And then in December of last year, I finally got a diagnosis, but there's still no real answers on like how to treat it. So we're still kind of in this place of, I don't know how I'm gonna feel today. I don't know how I'm gonna feel tomorrow. I don't know what the doctors are gonna be able to do about it. Um, We were suffering as a family. I was suffering as a person, um, physically and mentally. I think the hardest part was just not knowing, the not knowing and waiting for answers and hoping like, okay, this is gonna be the one doctor. Like having like all, putting all of your eggs in that basket and being like, okay, I'm gonna get answers. I'm gonna feel better. This is gonna be it. And then, having like all of your dreams crushed because they couldn't help you. And uh, throughout this, our church, not so much, but the church I was growing up in and talking to my parents who were still involved in that church are not good at handling suffering or a struggle in any sense. Uh, Growing up, um, I was taught that when we struggle or when we suffer, pain or illness or grief, whatever it may be, it's punishment for something that we did. And uh, 
while I still wasn't sure that I believed that God was punishing me, I still was kind of grappling with the sense of like, I did this to myself. Like maybe all of the years that I struggled with eating disorders or all of the years that I went untreated with depression or anxiety, maybe somehow caused all of this to happen. Or maybe because I tried to be too strong when I had COVID and tried to pretend like I was okay when I probably should have been in the hospital is what caused this. I still was trying to find the reason for why I was sick, for why I was suffering. <sighs> Whatever it was that caused my body to like dysfunction. Um, I, I don't know, I still don't know, my doctors still don't know. Um, but I think that grappling with finding the reason is natural. As people, we wanna know why. Um, where our world operates in cause and effect and when things don't apply to the laws of cause and effect, it's scary. And the church, I think, has really latched onto this idea as a way to comfort people of, because if there's a cause, there's a solution. Um, but I think that this idea of you have a cause for your suffering is more for the people that are doing the comforting rather than the person who is suffering. Um, it's, it's a lot less uncomfortable for the person offering the comfort to say, you did this to yourself. Even if it's well-intentioned, even if they're not necessarily exactly saying those words, it's a lot easier for them. But when you're the one that's suffering, those words mean nothing. It's, it's, it falls empty when someone says, well, have you tried yoga? Or have you tried essential oils? Or maybe have you cut out gluten? Like, you'll feel better, right? Like, I, one, I've tried all of those things. <laughs> Two, they didn't work. Um, and three, like, I don't want you to fix it. My doctors can't even fix it. There's nothing that you can say that's gonna fix it. I just wanna complain. Like, sometimes I just need to complain. Other times, I just need someone to hug me. I don't need someone to tell me that it's gonna be okay. I just need someone to be sad with me because I'm sad and it's hard. It's terrifying. And the church is not very good at that. <laughs> We're kind of terrible at it, actually. Um, the church as a whole, people, really, in general. Um, but of course, when we talk about suffering and pain, we have to talk about Job. And this book is used a lot to explain why we suffer, um, which kind of makes sense. You can see throughout, there's always like lots of reasons for why we suffer kind of in that dialogue, or sometimes people use it to say, um, Job isn't about why we suffer, but it's about teaching us how to suffer with patience, which is referenced to a verse in James chapter 5, um, verse 11. It's in your bulletin, I think, um, if you want to look at it. But that verse is more talking about Job had endurance with suffering, not necessarily patience. Um, he suffered for a long time, and he suffered a lot. Um, but I think as you read through the text as a whole, you see that Job wasn't exactly patient. Um, he endured, but he definitely got frustrated. He had questions, um, he had doubts, and he was very much impatient with his friends, his family, with God even. Uh, so we're gonna kinda dive through this text and we'll see as we go through that there are lots of emotions that Job feels, um, but I do wanna note that there are a lot of interpretations of this text. Um, I'm going to talk about one of them, but there are so many. Um, so just kind of to preface before we really dig into this. 
Uh, and it's also important to know that this isn't necessarily an, a, a historical account of something that happened. Job wasn't necessarily a person that lived, and this is a story of his life. Um, it's two chapters, there's a narrative story at the beginning, and then it's just a book of poems followed by a narrative at the end. And um, so I kind of see this more in the light of like how Jesus taught in parables. He told stories to tell a, a moral or he had a reason for telling his story that he wanted someone to learn, right? Something that he wanted the people to learn. And I don't think it's a really a far jump to assume that this is kind of written in that same, same light. He's, they're using a story to convey a message. And I think viewing the story of Job through this light or through this lens of parable teaching kind of gives us a little more freedom to see from different perspectives um, rather than being absolute truth of the, this happened exactly this way. This is who God is. This is who his friends are. This is who he is. We can see it a little more broadly um, and see that it was added to over time um, and that it's there are differing viewpoints kind of offered throughout. Um, and there's no one that's saying, like, this is right. There's, it's a discussion between people about what it means to suffer, about what it means to be human. And um, I do want to know, this doesn't really change the text at all, but this wasn't written like all at once. There's a lot of times biblical scholars can get close on when a text was written, but with Job, they have really no idea. It looks like it was just kind of added to by different people, probably that suffered um, something <laughs> throughout their life, throughout history. And they kind of added to this text as a way to make sense of what they were dealing with, make sense of kind of their history, and talk about um, the existence of suffering as a people group and leave something behind for those of, that would follow. And so in the beginning of our text of Job chapter one, Job is introduced as someone who is wealthy and well-revered. He is described as being very pious. Um, and then we're immediately faced with the question of, is Job pious because he is rich, because he is wealthy, because of all of the things that he has? He lives a really cushy life. Is that why he is faithful? Is that why he believes? And then, so we see a conversation between um, God and a character that in the English is translated as Satan, um, but it is actually Hasatan, which Rob has talked about before. And this character is more of the accuser, right? Um, so think of this character as sort of like a prosecutor in the text. He's not, he's not Satan, like the bearer of evil, but just more like an accuser or a prosecutor. Um, so in the conversation with Hasatan, um, he, Hasatan claims that Job is only pious because of what he gets out of the deal, because of all of the things that he has, because of his cushy life. And in response, God allows Hasatan to take everything away from Job um, to prove that Job is not faithful only because of his wealth. And then we see um, test after test that Job faces. He continues to remain, but he does have questions. He does express frustration, anger, impatience with his friends, his wife, even with God. So first, we're, um, it's kind of almost as a listed of the tests that Job faces. He loses his home, he loses his children, and then lastly, he loses his health. He's covered in boils all over his body. At this point, we are introduced to his friends who come and sit shiva with him, which is seven days of silence with someone who's in mourning. And they just sit 
in silence. They don't try to fix, they don't try to offer solutions, they just sit together. So after those seven days of silence, we get to meet Job's friends, um, and they each have quite a lot to say. <laughs> they um, all begin asking Job, what have you done to cause this? Um, God doesn't punish people for no reason. You're being punished here for something that you did. If you can just admit what it was, maybe all of this will go away. Maybe it'll all get better. Um, right, be oh, sorry, right before his friends start talking uh, in chapter 3, Job cries out, um, what is the point of my life? If it's going to be like this, I want it to end. What have I done to cause... Um, his friends are berating him. And then in chapter 6, he begins to turn back on his friends and he says, you're supposed to be my friends. You're supposed to stand with me through thick and thin. And yet here you are telling me this is my fault. I didn't even ask you to come here. Like, you're like really bad at your job. Like, you're supposed to be comforting me. And this is not, that is not what you're doing in any sense of the word. And then following that conversation in chapter 7, Job turns his questions to God. He's saying he's not ashamed of his questions. He says, I will shout them from the rooftops. I am being, I am bitter, but I'm honest. I will say what I need to say. I will ask the questions that I have. And through Job's questions of his friends and of God, his friends um, spend a lot of time trying to convince Job into their way of thinking, saying like, they have lots of things to say, lots of reasons why Job should side with them. And figure out what it is that he did wrong. But through the whole conversation, Job says, no, I will question. This is ridiculous that any God who claims to love me would do something like this. I've been a good person. I've offered up sacrifices for my children just in case they made mistakes. Like I've done everything that I possibly can. I am a good person. I'm doing the best that I can. They all kind of hold fast to their beliefs. They hold on to where they stand. Um, it seems almost as if it's an unproductive conversation, just like they're yelling at him, like, this is what we believe, and this is why you should believe us. And Job is saying, no, this is what I believe, and this is why you should believe me. Um, seems kind of like conversations that we have today about literally everything, right? <laughs> um, and I think a lot of times we are this way. We, we know what we believe. We kind of exist in this black and white space until something happens that causes us to question our belief. And uh, suffering is very good at this. It's really easy to hold on to the bootstraps mentality when you haven't had to try and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. <laughs> um, but when you're the one that's having to bear the weight and you're the one that's struggling and suffering, you start to see your own humanity in it and you realize maybe it's not quite so easy. I do the best that I can. I feel like I'm a good person yet I'm suffering and I can't seem to pull myself up no matter how hard I try. I can't seem to make myself feel better no matter how many oils I use or how much yoga I do, <laughs> uh, whatever it might be. And suffering is kind of the catalyst for those questions. And I think that's kind of where Job is in this. He, um, it, the text doesn't say, but I think that maybe he probably believed along the lines with his friends at some point and now here he is, he's the one suffering, and it's not quite so easy to hold on to that black and white box. Um, I know for myself, my own suffering has kind of <laughs> shaped and morphed over time my belief on who I am, who God is, how the world functions. Um, 
in the beginning, I was so angry at God. Like, how could you let something like this happen? Um, and then I stopped being angry at God so much and started being angry at myself um, for really coping mechanisms that helped me when I was a kid that turned and were no longer helping me. <laughs> um, I, I blamed those things for um, destroying my body, destroying my mind. For all the toxic things that I faced in my past, I was angry at those things. And then now I'm kind of in this space in between where I had to separate my own existence, God's existence, from suffering. Um, I had to accept that suffering maybe is just something that exists in the world and maybe it doesn't have a cause at all or maybe we'll never know what the cause is. And grappling with the cause of suffering, grappling, grappling with my beliefs through it all um, has been painful. Mm. But I, I can't not believe in a good God who would allow, um, a good God wouldn't allow things like this to happen. But if we separate the two, maybe, maybe there is no reason, there is no cause for our suffering. Maybe it's not God, maybe it's not us, maybe it's something that we've never even considered before. <coughs> we kind of see the same path for Job. It's messy, it's complicated. Um, he has, he kind of like is all over the place in his emotions and he's, at times he's screaming at God, other times he's telling his friends, you have no idea who God is. And Job is a person who exists fully within his own humanity, fully within his suffering and his grief. He is on a roller coaster of emotions in a very natural process. So the conversation between Job and his friends goes on for a while. Um, each friend is given three different speeches, all of which are followed by a response from Job. And then again, they each kind of hold fast on what their position is. Um, no one really is kind of wavering in their thoughts. But then in Chapter 38 is, we finally hear from God. Uh, he comes as a storm, and he gives a very long, elegant speech, um, basically asking Job, do you know what it's like to run the world? Um, <laughs> Pete ends, says, it's almost like God is filibustering here. I thought that was kind of a pretty fitting description. Um, kind of like a parent yelling at a teenager who's been in trouble, and is like, do you know what it takes to keep the lights on, to put food on the table? Like, do you think you could be a better parent than me? Um, I, I know I had several conversations like that with my parents, and I'm probably well with my kids too at some point, right? Um, so I kind of get the sense of like that's kind of where God is going with this. Um, and then in chapter 40, Job responds, and he says, I'm speechless, in awe, words fail me. I should never have opened my mouth. I've talked too much, way too much. I'm ready to shut up and listen. And at face value, this could be interpreted as Job is admitting he's wrong. Okay, yeah, you're right. I don't know how to run a world. I'll just stop talking. Sorry that I asked too many questions. But then God responds. So let's just pretend like for a moment that Job is not saying, oh, yep, you're right. You're God. You're in control. And pretend like maybe Job is a little sarcastic. And he's kind of saying like, oh, okay, yeah, you didn't answer any of my questions with that really long, pretty speech. So I'm just done with this conversation. Uh, and I say that because God goes, kind of buckles down and keeps going with this conversation. Um, 
And I think that if Job really was like, yep, you're right, God wouldn't feel the need to continue the conversation. Like it would just be like, okay, yeah, you're right, I'm right. Go to your room, right? Um, <laughs> so he says, uh, if, and then in chapter 42, after another pretty long speech from God, where jo um, God says, no, I've got some questions for you, and goes on again to it's, uh, another speech. In chapter 42, we see, um, again, what might be a submission from Job. So let's read actually that one. Um, I'm reading from the message version just because uh, I thought it was easier to understand, to be honest. Um, but I am not sure which one Megan put in the bulletin. So you can read along with me on your bulletin. So it says, Job answered God. I'm convinced you can do anything and everything. Nothing and no one can upset your plans. You asked, who is this muddying the water? ignorantly confusing the issue, second-guessing my purposes. I admit, I was the one. I babbled on about things far beyond, made small talk about wonders way over my head. You told me, listen and let me do the talking. Let me ask the questions. You give the answers. I admit, I once lived by rumors of you. Now I have it all firsthand from my own eyes and ears. I'm sorry, forgive me. I'll never do it again, I promise. I'll never again live on crusts of heresy or crumbs of rumors. So we see again um, what looks like Job is saying, okay, yeah, I get it. Like, I asked too many questions. You're right. You're God. I am not. But what if it's not? Um, Job throughout the text has kind of continued to buckle down and say, no, I'll ask my questions. I will, I will be mad. I will be bitter. Um, and it's, I mean, it's entirely possible that after a storm comes and yells at him and says, like, do you know how to run a world, that Job is like, whoa, this is too much. I'm done. Uh, I probably would have been the same way. <laughs> but it just seems kind of out of character for the Job for the rest of the, the text. Um, so it makes me wonder if maybe Job isn't quite saying for face value what this says. Um, maybe Job is more saying, like, yeah, I heard you. I heard, I've heard about you from my friends and my family, and now I'm hearing what you're saying. And I really kind of was holding on to hope that maybe <coughs> the God I believed in was better than the ones my friends was telling me about, the one who punishes people, the one who seems kind of vindictive and angry, the transactional relationship. And now you're here saying the same thing. Almost as if he's saying, do you realize kind of what you sound like? And there's quotes in um, the passage around some of the different texts in this. So Job is repeating back what's been said earlier. Uh, and so I really do kind of get a sense of Job is asking God, do you know what you sound like? He, he's being honest. He's being vulnerable. He's not necessarily accepting God's answers that because I said so. Um, he's more, I expected better. But now here you are saying the same things that my friend said. Honestly, from the very first passage, God looks like the bad guy. And I think, like, kind of as it goes on, he looks even worse. <laughs> and um, it kind of makes me wonder that maybe the text was never meant to be about God in the first place. Maybe it was written by a people who knew what it was like to suffer and were grappling with the reality of their pain and their suffering, and they were trying to make sense of it in really the only way that they knew how. Um, it's a conversation between people of different viewpoints at the time. And 
Maybe we're not being taught who God is, but we're being taught what it looks like to be human, to feel pain. Maybe we're being given permission to ask the hard questions, to see God as the bad guy. How many times have we been in church and it's like, that is not allowed. Um, but maybe this text is giving us permission to see God as the bad guy and to ask those questions. Because when we can shut down the black and white thinking and step out of the box, we're giving ourselves permission to see in a way that we can never see before. Um, when we exist in that box of black and white thinking, we don't allow ourselves to feel the full spectrum of emotion, uh, which ultimately makes the pain and the suffering worse in the long run. So maybe being wholly human is what this text is all about. Maybe those feelings, those doubts and questions are just the reality of being human, or the reality of suffering. And the narrative portion at the end of the book, in 42, right after uh, what I just read, God restores everything that Job has lost, um, and even doubles it. But bef right before this happens, God commends Job for his honesty, and he says in verse 7, I've had it with you and your friends. I'm fed up. You haven't been honest, either with me or about me, not the way that my friend Job has. So in the end, Job, refusing to accept the because I said so answer, connected God and Job in a way that religion never connected Job's friends with God. Job's insistence that suffering and its messiness doesn't have to ruin the goodness of God or the goodness of him, of Job, of humanity. When he was in the midst of his suffering, it almost broke him. It almost breaks us when we're suffering, when we're struggling, right? It can, it can devastate our relationships with our friends and our family, with ourselves, with God. It can ruin the way that you see the world. It can make you bitter and angry. I know there have been countless times that I've wanted to walk away from religion, from everything altogether, um, just from all of the suffering in hopes that maybe I can outrun it, right? And, but until we're the ones that are, is bearing the weight, rather than question his own goodness, Job questioned his theology. He wasn't questioning God, he was questioning his belief in God, his theology. In chapter 13, he tells his friends, Aren't you afraid to speak up or speak cheap lies before him? Your wise sayings are knick-knack wisdom, good for nothing but gathering dust. In a sense, he's saying, your theology on suffering makes sense when you don't need it, but it does you really no good when it's covered in dust. It's just sitting on a shelf. But when you need it, that's when it becomes important. That's when you start to realize, maybe I've got this wrong. Maybe there's something else here that I'm not seeing. Then in chapter 21, Job complains about the wicked getting it good. It's the very antithesis of the theology of his friends. He's saying his friends are insisting that God only punishes the wicked, and Job is saying, no, the wicked have it easy. <laughs> like, I am, they get away with everything, and oh, I've tried to be my best and do my best, and I'm the most miserable of us all. And honestly, how many of us have asked that question? Why do the wicked, why do the people who are out there just doing whatever they want, no matter who it may harm, they seem to have it so easy and they seem to get it so good, and yet here I am, like, trying to be a good person. It's hard. <laughs> it's so hard, and it feels like I keep hitting walls. I keep suffering. I keep struggling. How many of us 
have wondered, just like Job, why do the wicked have it so easy? Isn't it supposed to be the other way around? That chapter 21 ends with Job asking his friends, so how do you expect me to get any comfort from your nonsense? Your so-called comfort is a tissue of lies, saying, Basically, my experience has been that the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. You're wrong. Your words are not comforting to me. So maybe the writers here, um, like I said, of which there's probably many of the book of Job, um, weren't trying to understand how to better suffer or why we suffer. They are finding freedom in the questions, the finding freedom in the exploring a God bigger than their box that religion has put him in, that has put them in. And in that God, they're able to experience the full spectrum of emotions of grief and pain and suffering. Like I said before, when we take ourselves out of the black and white box, we are able to experience a full spectrum of emotions, um, which in the end sets us free. When we ride the wave, um, we come out on top. So this week, as we go into our week, um, may we learn to suffer like Job, accepting that we might not ever know the reason for why we suffer or struggle, but may we still hold on to the goodness of God and the goodness of humanity in knowing that we can both, God and I, can both still be good even though suffering exists in the world. May we see the story of Job as not a picture of who God is, but a picture of a journey of growth and maturity through grief and pain. May we always be raw and honest in order to connect more deeply, not only with ourselves, but with the world around us and ultimately with God. Let me pray. Um, God, thank you that um, this is a place where hopefully everyone can feel safe to be honest and um, admit that we suffer and we struggle. Thank you that you allow us to be honest and to question and to be angry when we're suffering, um, when you still love us all the same. And I just pray that we're able to go out this week and find goodness, grace, and peace, even if we're suffering or we're struggling. In your name, amen. This has been the Collective Church Podcast. We post episodes every week on Sundays. If you're interested in supporting our church, you can give at collectivechurch.net slash give. I hope you enjoyed listening.